0: section nine of lives of the queens of england volume eight by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain henrietta maria chapter three part one queen henrietta trusted that the air and waters of her native land would restore her to convalescence and repair the constitution shattered by the severe trials mental and bodily which she had sustained The springs of bourbon, indeed, somewhat ameliorated her health. But her firmness of mind was greatly shaken. She wept perpetually for her husband's misfortunes. She was wasted almost to maceration, and her beauty was forever departed. This loss she bore with great philosophy. She did not even suppose that it was caused by her troubles. She used to affirm, that beauty was but a morning's bloom, and that she had plainly perceived the departure of hers at twenty-two, and that she did not believe that the charms of other ladies continued longer. It mattered little to her, since her husband loved her with increased affection, and proved to her, by a thousand tender expressions and kind deeds, how much the wife was dearer than the bride the following graphic portrait drawn by her friend madame de motteville gives a faithful description of queen henrietta both in person and mind and it must be remembered that the study was from life and the result of familiar acquaintance i found this once lovely queen very ill and much changed being meagre and shrunk to a shadow her mouth which naturally was the worst feature of her face had become too large even her form seemed marred She still had beautiful eyes, a lovely complexion, a nose finely formed, and something in her expression, so spirituel and agreeable, that it commanded the love of every one. She had withal great wit and a brilliant mind, which delighted all her auditors. She was not above being agreeable in society, and was at the same time sweet, sincere, easy, and accessible, living with those who had the honor of her intimacy, without form or ceremony her temper was by nature gay and cheerful often when her tears were streaming while she narrated her troubles the reminiscences of some ridiculous adventure would occur and she would make all the company laugh by her wit and lively description before her own eyes were dry to me her conversation usually took a solid tone her grief and deep feeling made her look on this life and the pride of it in a true light which rendered her far more estimable than she would have been had sorrow never touched her she was naturally a most generous character those who knew her in her prosperity assured me that her hand was most bounteous as long as she had ought to give such is the sketch drawn by henrietta's most intimate friend who was at the same time one of the most virtuous the most accomplished and the best of her countrywomen candor demands that we should place this portrait of henrietta drawn at a time when she utterly vanishes from the historic page of england in contradistinction to the prejudiced caricatures which our native authors furnish the french people not yet agitated by the insurgency of the civil war of the fronde paid the most affectionate attention to henrietta regarding her as the daughter sister and aunt of their kings as she had when in power done sufficient to provoke the political vengeance of her sister-in-law anne of austria in whose hands the sovereignty of france rested as queen-regent her thoughts became a little uneasy on that subject henrietta had most warmly taken the part of her mother marie de medicis with whom anne of austria had always been on bad terms and as her biographer expresses it she had inflicted on the latter some petite malices which are great evils at a time when an exalted person is undergoing a series of persecutions fortunately however the manly character of henrietta's consort had interposed in the behalf of anne of austria and he had been able to perform some important services for her during the sway of her tyrant richelieu especially by the protection he had afforded to her persecuted favourite the duchess of which that queen now remembered with gratitude, and repaid to his afflicted wife and children. Madame de Motville enjoyed every possible opportunity of writing true history in all she has testified, since she was on the spot, and domesticated with the exiled queen at this juncture. The queen regent, Anne of Austria, whose confidential lady of honor, Madame de Motville, was, sent her to the Baths of Bourbon, to offer queen henrietta all the assistance that was in the power of france to bestow to this anne of austria added many marks of beneficence most liberally supplying her afflicted sister-in-law with money for her expenditure of all which bounty henrietta stripped herself and sent every farthing she could command to the king her husband madame de motteville continues to observe after relating this good trait of henrietta that many persons have attributed the fall of King Charles to the bad advice of his queen, but that she was not inclined to believe it, since the faults and mistakes she actually committed, she candidly avowed, in the foregoing narrative which pursues our fair historian. She did me the honor to relate to me exactly as I wrote it, when we were domesticated together in a solitary place, where peace and repose reigned around us, unbroken by worldly trouble. Here I penned, from first to last, the detail of her misfortunes, which she related to me, in the confidence of familiar friendship. Lord German had retained his post in the household of Henrietta through every reverse of fortune, and was now the superintendent of her expenditure, the steward of her finances, and the person who provided her with everything she either wore or consumed. He had enriched himself as her treasurer in the days of her prosperity, and he had contrived, by foreseeing the disastrous tendency of the royalist cause in England, to invest his large capital on the continent. The English authors suppose that Lord German maintained the queen when she was in exile, a great mistake which the French archives prove that she had a noble income settled upon her as a daughter of France in distress. She might even have saved money if her hand had not been over bounteous toward her distressed husband the assistance therefore given her by german must be limited to the failure of her french supplies during the extreme crisis of the war of the fronde which did not occur till several years after her return to france however the devoted fidelity of this servant of her household his adherence to his office in times of the utmost danger when he occasionally felt himself obliged to disperse the queen's expenses instead of reaping wealth from the income of his appointment naturally raised gratitude in her mind he was called her minister and by some her favourite as such madame de motteville draws the following portrait of him at this period he seemed an honourable man remarkably mild in his manners but to me he appeared of bounded capacity and better fitted to deal with matters of petty detail than great events he had for the queen that species of fidelity usual to long trusted officials he insisted that all her money must be deposited with him before any other person in the world that he might apply it to her expenses which at all times were great the queen reposed much confidence in him but it is not true that he governed her entirely she often manifested a will contrary to his and maintained it as absolute mistress she always showed proper feeling in regard to all who depended on her but she was naturally inclined to be positive And to support her own opinions with vivacity. Her arguments, while maintaining her own will, were urged with no little talent, and were mingled with a graceful playfulness of raillery, which tempered the high spirit and commanding courage of which she had given so many proofs in the principal actions of her life. Queen Henrietta, unfortunately for herself, had not acquired in early life the experience given by an intimate knowledge of history her misfortunes had repaired this defect, and painful experience had improved her capacity, but we saw her in France lose the tottering crown, which she at this time, that is 1644, could scarcely be considered to retain. Our fair historian, who was literally behind the scenes and saw all the springs of movement which influenced the conduct of the royal family of England, as well as that of France, proceeds to make the following observation which is not merely a brilliant antithesis of french genius but a sober and simple truth which may be corroborated by every examiner into documentary history the cabinets of kings are theatres where are continually played pieces which occupy the attention of the whole world some of these are entirely comic there are also tragedies whose greatest events are almost always caused by trifles and such is ever the result when power falls into the hands of those who ignorant of the events of the past have never studied history or drawn rational deductions by reasoning on the causes of those events chance governs the conduct of such royal personages great tragedies spring from trifling caprices if of good capacity and virtuous inclinations experience may be learned by a royal tyro but generally too late For mistakes in government cannot be rectified by the work being taken out and a better put in. As a craftsman's apprentice gains his skill by rectifying mistakes, the irrevocable past assumes the awful mean of destiny and too often governs the future. The Queen of England, my aunt, says Mademoiselle de Montpensier, in the autumn of 1634, was afflicted with a malady for which her physicians had already prescribed for her the warm baths of bourbon, and she was forced to make some stay there before she was well enough to come to the French court. When she was convalescent, her arrival was formally announced, and I was sent in the king's coach in the name of their majesties, that is, the infant Louis the Fourteenth and his mother the queen regent to invite her to court for such is the usual etiquette. Gaston, duke of Orleans, the favorite brother of Henrietta, had not, however, waited for the formality of such an approach, and he had flown to visit and comfort her, and was with her at the baths of Bourbon, when his daughter, the grand mademoiselle, arrived in the queen's coach. I found monsieur my father, continues that lady, with the queen of England, He had been with her some time before I arrived. We both brought her in state on the road to Paris. The precise time of this progress is noted in the journal of the celebrated Evelyn, who, as a philosopher, and therefore, we suppose, a non-combatant, had very wisely asked the king leave to spend his youth in travel, while broadswords were clashing and the war cry of Ho for cavaliers! Hey for cavaliers! was resounding throughout his native island. He encountered Queen Henrietta on this journey at Tours. He saw her make her entry in great state. The archbishop went to meet her and received her with a harangue at the head of the clergy and authorities of that city on the 18th of August, old style 1644. Her majesty rested at Tours in the archbishop's palace where she gave Evelyn an audience. She recommenced her journey to Paris on the 20th of August in the state coach, with her brother Gaston, and La Grande Mademoiselle, who observes, At the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, the Queen-Regent came to meet the Queen of England, my aunt, and she brought the little king and the child, his brother, to receive her. They all kissed her, and invited her into the king's coach, and thus she made her entry into Paris. Mademoiselle de Montpensier was as much struck by the wretched appearance of the poor queen, as Madame de Motteville had been. She says, although queen henrietta had taken the utmost care to recover her good looks her strength and her health she still appeared in a state so deplorable that no one could look at her without an emotion of compassion she was escorted to the louvre and given possession of her apartments by the queen-regent and her son in person they led her by the hand and kissed her with great tenderness they treated her not only with the consideration due to a queen but to a queen who was at the same time a daughter of france anne of austria gave her distressed sister-in-law the noble income of twelve thousand crowns per month much has been said relative to the pecuniary distress suffered by queen henrietta during her exile in france but justice obliges the remark that her generous relatives supplied her most liberally with funds till the civil war of the fronde reduced them all to similar destitution The pecuniary deprivations of the exiled queen lasted only a few months, although it is usually affirmed that such was the case during the rest of her life. The truth was, she stripped herself of whatever was given her, and gradually sold all her jewels, to send every penny she could command to her suffering husband. Her boundless generosity, and her utter self-denial, in regard to all indulgences, that she could not share with him, is the best point of her character the kindest of her friends, the most credible of witnesses, Madame de Motville, and those two bright examples of old English honor and fidelity, Sir Richard and Lady Fanshawe, bear testimony in many passages to this disposition of Henrietta's income. Mademoiselle, her niece, observes, with some contempt. The Queen of England appeared, during a little while, with the splendor of royal equipage, she had a full number of ladies, of maids of honor, of running footmen, coaches, and guards. All vanished, however, by little and little, and at last nothing could be more mean than her train and appearance. We have seen the unfortunate Queen of Charles I, inducted into the Louvre by the generous regent of France. That palace was not, during the minority of Louis the Fourteenth, occupied by the court, and its royal apartments were vacant for the reception of their desolate guest, anne of austria likewise appointed for her country residence the old chateau of saint-germain whither she retired that autumn within three or four days after she had taken possession of her apartments in the louvre one of henrietta's first occupations when settled in her residence at saint-germain en lay was to indite the following letter to the bishop of leon it affords a specimen of childish devotion better befitting the semi-barbarians of the middle ages than a woman of brilliant intellect of the seventeenth century queen henrietta maria to the bishop of leon Monsieur leves de leon i am apprised of the pains you have taken at the reception of a little offering which the father capuchins have brought on my part to our lady of Lies to mark my gratitude to her for having preserved me from shipwreck through the goodness of our lord and for the intervention of this holy mother in the tempest which i encountered at sea the preceding years which has induced me to propose founding a mass to be said for me every saturday in the year in the said chapel for perpetuity and i have at the same time empowered those who deliver this to enter into the contract for this effect as i send a capuchin of my almoners with power to do all that is needful in this affair who promises that you who have already given your cares to this good work will continue them and employ your authority to establish it to the glory of god and the honor of the holy virgin and to mark my perpetual reliance on the one and on the other meantime i myself will in person render my vows at the same chapel to testify the good will i shall ever bear in you praying god monsieur levesque ever to hold you in his keeping from Saint-Germain-en-Laye, this 7th of September, 1644, your good friend, Henriette Marie R. The contribution the Queen sent to the chapel by her Capuchin almoner was 1,500 livres for a low mass to be said every week in perpetuity. This sum she doubtless devoted as a thank offering for the bounteous supply which had been accorded by her munificent sister-in-law, the Queen of France. Although so generously soothed and succored, Queen Henrietta remained for many months deeply depressed in spirit, mourning her utter bereavement of husband and children. Her time was principally spent in writing to King Charles and her establishment at the Louvre proved the rallying point for loyalist English emigrants who sought shelter under her influence in France when the various plots broke and fell to pieces, which were devised for the restoration of King Charles among these were found the illustrious literary names of cowley denham and waller cowley followed the queen to paris after the surrender of oxford and became latin secretary to lord german who had the whole care of her household the office of the poet extended to the translation of all the letters that passed between the queen and king charles in cipher and so indefatigable was their correspondence that it employed cowley all the days of the week and often encroached on his knights for several years brief must be the specimens of the letters which passed between this pair so tender and true how deeply their correspondence was marked by heart-feeling the following will show king charles to queen henrietta sixteen forty five since i love thee above all earthly things and that my contentment is inseparable conjoined with thine must not all my actions tend to serve and please thee if you knew what a life I lead, I speak not of the common distractions, even in point of conversation, which in my mind is the chief joy or vexation of one's life. I dare say thou wouldst pity me, for some are too wise, others are too foolish, some are too busy, others are too reserved and fantastic. Here the king gives in cipher the names of the persons whose conversation in domestic life suits his taste so little owing at the same time in matters of business they were estimable after enumerating names to which the cipher is now lost the king adds now mayest thou easily judge how such conversation pleaseth me i confess thy company hath perhaps made me hard to be pleased but no less to be pitied by thee who art the only cure for this unease comfort me with thy letters and dost now not think that to know particulars of thy health and how thy spendest thy time are pleasing subjects to me though thou hast no other business to write of believe me sweetheart thy kindness is as necessary to comfort my heart as thy assistance is to my affairs in this series occurs a letter from henrietta in which she alludes to a passage in one from her husband where he seemed to doubt that she had shown his correspondence to some other than lord jermyn who with his assistant secretary the young cavalier poet cowley were the only persons entrusted with the deciphering of the royal letters queen henrietta to king charles there is one thing in your letter which troubles me much where you would have me keep to myself your despatches as if you believed that I should be capable, to show them to any, only to Lord Jur, that is German, to uncipher them, my head not suffering me to do it myself, but if it please you, I will do it, and none in the world shall see them. Be kind to me, or you kill me. I already have affliction enough to bear, which without your love I could not do, but your service surmounts all. Farewell, dear heart, behold the mark which you desire to have, to know when i desire anything in earnest x this letter proves that lord german was the king's trusted friend and that his majesty expressed displeasure if the confidence of the queen was not entirely limited to him it is another instance which fully proves the fact that the person to whom the world gave the epithet of royal favorite was in reality private secretary and decipherer of the letters of the king or queen envy and scandal perpetually pursued such confidants of royalty and the malicious stories circulated by their enemies always take a vague place in general history without any definition being afforded of the close attendance the office required especially when the economy induced by the king's misfortunes obliged lord german to unite the duties of the queen's chamberlain steward and secretary in one on these reports Horace Walpole has founded one of his malicious tales on no better authority than oral tradition. One evening, he says, before the queen quitted England, the king had nearly surprised Lord German alone with her. One of the gentlemen in waiting, who were walking backwards before the king with lights down the gallery, stumbled and fell on purpose, which gave German time to escape as lord jermyn had been the queen's domestic ever since she was seventeen being appointed as such by the king to her great displeasure on the dismissal of her french servants the astonishment of his majesty would have been caused by his absence from the queen's apartment when he arrived and not by his presence fortunately for the memory of henrietta her self-sacrifices in behalf of king charles are sufficient to refute such slanders it is not usual for women whose affections wander from their husbands to deprive themselves of every splendour every luxury and even of the necessaries of life for their sakes horace walpole knew best if such was the way of his world the following letter quoted from the cabinet captured at naseby alludes to the sum sent by the queen to the assistance of her husband queen henrietta to king charles paris january twenty seventh sixteen forty four to forty five my dear heart tom elliot two days since hath brought me much joy and sorrow the first to know the estate you are in the other the fear i have that you go to london i cannot conceive where the wit was of those that gave you this counsel unless it be to hazard your person to save others But thanks be to God. Today I received one of yours by the ambassador of Portugal, dated in January, which comforted me much to see that the treaty shall be at Uxbridge. For the honor of God, trust not yourself in the hands of those people. If ever you go to London, before the parliament be ended, or without a good army, you are lost. I understand that the propositions for peace must begin by disbanding your army. If you consent to this, you are lost they having the whole power of the militia they have and will do whatsoever they will i received yesterday letters from the duke of lorraine who sends me word that if his services be agreeable he will bring you ten thousand men dr gough whom i have sent into holland shall treat with him in his passage upon this business and i hope very speedily to send you good news of this as also of the money Assure yourself I shall be wanting in nothing you can desire, and that I will hazard my life, that is, I will die with famine, rather than not send it to you. Send me word always, by whom you receive my letters, for I write both by the ambassador of Portugal and the resident of France. Above all, have a care not to abandon those who serve you, as well the bishops as the poor Catholics. Adieu charles I very truly anticipated that the publication of the letters and papers which his rebels captured at naseby in his private cabinet would raise his character in the estimation of the world he thus mentions the subject in a letter to his secretary sir edward nicholas my rebels i thank them have published my private letters in print and though i could have wished their pains had been spared yet i will neither deny that those things were mine which they have set out in my name only some words here and there are mistaken and some commas misplaced but not much material nor will i as a good protestant or honest man blush for any of those papers indeed as a discreet man i will not justify myself yet would i fain know him who would be willing that all his private letters should be seen as mine have now been However, so that but one clause be rightly understood, I care not so much that the others take their fortune. It is concerning the mongrel parliament. The truth is that Sussex's facetiousness at that time put me out of patience, which made me freely vent my displeasure against those of his party to my wife. In the course of her correspondence, the queen most earnestly strove to dissuade her husband from his fatal determination of trusting himself in the hands of the prevalent political party in scotland we say the prevalent party for we scorn to re-echo the imputations cast on the gallant nation as a whole for the misdeed committed by the greedy leaders of a faction charles i however took the disastrous step against which his queen had vainly warned him the scotch calvinists sold him to the republican army and to which the palm of infamy is to be awarded his buyers or sellers, we think would puzzle a casuist. After this event, the royalist cause was hopeless in England, and the queen, torn with anguish in regard to the personal safety of her husband, sent Sir John Denham from France, in order to obtain a personal conference with him, that she might know his real situation. Sir John either influenced or bribed that strange fanatic, Hugh Peters, to obtain for him this interview the faithful and learned cavalier saw the king at caversham and informed him of the exact situation of his queen in her native country and of all her hopes and fears regarding foreign assistance denham relates a most pleasing anecdote relative to the interest the king took in his literary productions all the troubles which oppressed his royal heart had not prevented charles from reading and analyzing denham's poem on sir richard fanshawe's translation of the pastor fido the pleasures arising from literature were the sole consolations of the unfortunate charles during his utter bereavement and separation from all he loved in life the first gleam of satisfaction in the mind of queen henrietta was the arrival of her eldest son in france this boy with his younger brother the duke of york had early been inured to the sound of bullets and the crash of cannon they had followed their royal father through many a field of various fortune sometimes exposed to the range of the murderous bullet sometimes crouched from the pelting storm beneath a hedge suffering in company with some much enduring divine of the persecuted church of england their tutor hunger cold and pitiless weather while their royal sire was putting the fortunes of england on a field then when the strife was over springing to the arms of their father and comforting him by their passionate caresses in after-life james duke of york often narrated his early reminiscences of such adventures occurring when he was little more than nine years old he recalled them with the feeling of love and admiration with which he always mentioned his father's name this young prince was left in oxford at its disastrous surrender and was committed by the parliament to the custody of the earl of northumberland and afterwards lodged as a prisoner in the palace of st james the young prince of wales was hurried to the loyal west of england where on her own dower possessions as the queen of england and on the Stannery district belonging to the prince a more settled government had been established by henrietta than in any other part of the country and here she had promoted a trade with france for tin which has been quoted as a proof of her practical abilities when the fortunes of charles i became still more and more disastrous the young prince of wales was withdrawn to Skilly, afterwards to Jersey finally he took shelter on the opposite coast september eighteenth sixteen forty six and joined his royal mother at paris from thence the mother and son were invited by the queen-regent of france to visit her and the little king louis the fourteenth at fontainebleau and their reception is thus described by an eye-witness the queen-regent and the little king of france came to meet their royal guests and received them into their coach when they alighted louis the fourteenth gave his hand to his aunt the queen of great britain and the prince of wales led the queen of france the next day the prince of wales came to her drawing-room where she appointed him a fontille as concerted with his mother queen henrietta but when his mother afterwards entered the apartment it was etiquette for the prince only to occupy a joint stool in her presence as Queen of Great Britain. He therefore rose from the armchair and took his place in the circle, where he remained standing during the audience. Very similar does it seem that these royal exiles were employing their thoughts in occupying their time with arrangements of precedence between joint stools and armchairs. Yet so it was, till Henrietta Maria was a refugee in France, It appears that she disliked such pompous trifles, as much as did her mighty sire, Henri Cotte, and never exacted them in her private intercourse with her friends. We see how utterly free her letters are from cold ceremony. But when under the protection of her munificent Spanish sister-in-law, Anne of Austria, she was forced to take the heavy chain of etiquette on her neck more than ever, or run the risk of giving offense every moment, by breaking those little incomprehensible laws, by which an observer of ceremonies governs every movement of those domesticated with them it seems to have been anne of austria's favourite manner of testifying her hospitality and consideration for her guests and proteges to offer them precedence to herself and her sons on every occasion of course it was but good manners in the royal guest to protest against such precedence and distinction thus was time tediously spent in ceremonials idle and absurd and the worst was that an elaborate example was set for such follies to the bystanding courtiers from whom it spread all over europe a scene of this kind occurred soon after the arrival of the prince of wales at the french court madame de motteville says that at the betrothal of the mademoiselle de tamines with the marquis de cuve queen henrietta who was among the guests at this festival was given by the royal family of france the precedence in signing the marriage articles, which she did not do till after all the civilities and resistances required on such occasions had been carried to the utmost. Then the Queen Regent of France, Anne of Austria, signed, and the Minor King, Louis the Fourteenth, then Charles, Prince of Wales, and then Monsieur, that is Gaston, Duke of orleans because the veritable Monsieur Philippe, Duke of Anjou, was too little to sign, not being able to write. Madame de Motville proceeds to declare that the young king of France seldom took precedence of Charles, Prince of Wales, when they met at court, or when they danced the bronle or brawl, without great apology. The two queens had so arranged the ceremonial, that these representatives of the two greatest kingdoms in the world were either accommodated with equal joint stools in the royal presences, or stood in the courtly circle the following sketch of charles in his youth then about sixteen was drawn from the life this prince was very well shaped his brown complexion agreed well enough with his large bright black eyes though his mouth was exceedingly ugly but his figure was surpassingly fine he was very tall for his age and carried himself with grace and dignity his natural tendency to wit and repartee was not noticed, for at that time of his life he hesitated and even stammered, a defect observed in his father, Charles I, and still more seriously in his uncle, Louis Thirteenth. This defect was nevertheless no fault of the organs of utterance, as Madame de Motteville supposes, for the prince's tongue was glib enough in his own language, but was owing to his great difficulty in pronouncing French, a proof that his mother had not accustomed herself to talk to her children in her native language. For a year or two after his arrival in France, we shall find that the young prince was forced to remain nearly a mute for want of words. End of section 9